All right, along with Andy, uh, I said Andy, uh, Adrian brought us, sorry, Adrian, I was looking at a picture of Andy Lee, who I used to work with on Sports Talk on Facebook, as I, we, we use Facebook folks to uh, talk with each other during the show. Some people don't know this, they wonder, how do we do it? How do we communicate with each other? Well, we communicate on Facebook. I, I knew social media was good for something, right? I mean, honestly, we love Twitter, and uh, we use Facebook chat. That's our call screener device. You know, the radio station could have spent thousands and thousands of dollars on professional call screeners that uh, most uh, stations use. But we came up years ago with this brilliant idea. Let's just use Facebook chat to determine uh, who's on the phone lines and save us the hassle of having to invest thousands of dollars into a call screening software. So that's what we do. We use Facebook. And as I logged on, as we always do... The first thing I saw um, was uh, my former partner, Andy, on Facebook. So when I was looking at it and I was doing the uh, normal intro, I called Adrian Andy. So my apologies to you, Andy, uh, uh, although uh, spent many good years with us here at the radio station, and his mom, Marina, still works with us. So uh, nonetheless, Adrian, you have a very busy day today. It is going to be two and a half hours of this, an hour with Paul McKinnon on our Football Friday Night pregame show at 5.30, then back again getting ready for Football Friday Night following the Chihuahuas tonight as uh, they do battle against Salt Lake in game four of their six-game series before they hit the road. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's football Friday night. It's a busy night. Yeah, this is a great week of football Friday night. Steve, by the way, no problem at all. I love Andy Lee and uh, love the family as well. And, you know, I'm so fired up for this week's football Friday night because it's a week two slate of just awesome matchups in non-district play. I think tonight we'll start to understand who are the contenders uh, that we might see down the season and who might be some pretenders down mm-hmm. the line, who we, we might have a chance to have an early season write-off. But no knock to any of these teams. I love the first week of Football Friday Night and, and Texas high school football action last week, and now it gets started with another great week. It's going to be terrific. we got games galore this week. There's tons and tons of games. So we'll talk about that. We'll get you ready for Football Friday Night coming up two and a half hours from now. And because of the early Friday shows uh, with the Chihuahuas, what we do is this. You know, normally Football Friday Night starts at 7 o'clock. And, and normally we, uh, you know, don't have Chihuahuas baseball. But because um, the Chihuahuas season now ends in late September, what we're doing is we are flexing the start of sports talk uh, and we're going up an hour. We're going up to three instead of four which gives us a a two-and-a-half-hour show. It then gives high school football the final hour, the bridge, as we get ready for the Chihuahuas. And then we get to go back after Tim Haggerty with Football Friday Night. So we got some great high school football games uh, to cover here tonight. We've got great guests lined up for you as well. In fact, um, we've got uh, Eli Letterman. He is the uh, University of Oklahoma beat writer for the Tulsa World. And uh, I saw this. He's a New Yorker. Now, oh, nice. Okay. I don't know You know, if he's from the city, the island, upstate. We'll, we'll, we'll find out from Eli when he joins us on the program. I'm excited about that. So, um, And then, if that's not enough, we've got Bob Aguide from the El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame. He's going to join us at 4. This is induction weekend for the Hall. So I'm excited about that. Their class of 2022 which, uh, if anybody's been following it, you have five individuals, 
Kyle Anson from Socorro, uh, Efren Lada from Isleta, Alex Pena played at Irvin, Lou Romano getting into the... I knew there was going to be a Hall of Fame that eventually would uh, would bring Lou in, and, and the first one is the El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame. Friend of the program, Lou Romano, congrats again. And Rick Solis, also from Isleta. So... Um, and by the way, Solis played three seasons with the Dodgers organization. Um, and, or man, if it was three, but he played some with the Dodgers. Pena played uh, and, and signed with the Baltimore Orioles, played with them. So, uh, you know, we've got some pretty good, uh, some pretty cool things going on here. And Efren Lada was uh, a, an international supervisor scout for the Rangers. These are all past ones have had good baseball ties over the years. That's exactly right, Steve. I, I love the class uh, this year for the El Paso Baseball ha- Hall of Fame, and uh, just exciting to honor all these different members, and g- going to be great to speak with Bob here later today. Looking forward to that. So that's coming up at 4. Then our good pal Shahan Jayaraja is going to join us at 4.20. Super excited about that. What a day to get Shahan. We didn't plan this, Steve, where the, the college football playoff is expanding to 12 teams, and we got Shahan Raja to join us from CBS Sports. We did not plan this this way. Did he tell you that we're still okay, or did he uh, no, change his we're mind? we're good. We're good to go. Shahan, always uh, great for, for his word, and uh, he's ready to rock and roll with us. Yeah, that's breaking news, folks. That is breaking news. Although, they're going to try and implement it by 24 but they said 26 right now is where it's going to start. So we'll see if they could bump it up to 2024. That would be nice. It really would be. And this is a great day for group of five teams, right, Steve? Because now you don't have to think, well, oh, man, you're never going to get to the college football playoff uh, if you're if you're one of these teams like, hey, like UTEP or like Boise State or like Cincinnati, who are, are always – they always seem to be like kind of on the outside looking in. This gives them an opportunity to try to – make a case for themselves in front of the college football playoff selection committee as to how they can be uh, you know, selected for this 12-team playoff. This is a great day for a group of five conference schools, affiliates, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a really, really awesome uh, day for them. And we're talking about the top 12 teams, correct, in the C- in the CFP? That's right, yeah, exactly. So, so, so six, real quick, six uh, that they'll do automatic bids from conference champions, yep. and then six at-large bids. Okay, do we know Do we know for sure that a group of five gets a seat at the table every year, or is it just the 12 best teams, and if there's nobody good out of the group of 12, they're not playing? Yeah, that's a great question, but I, I would also say it's probably going to be the best 12 teams, and, that, and that's cool right there, right? Because that means if a group of five team ends up 12 and 0 on a season or 11 and 1 and makes their case as to why they are a top 12 team in college football then they will get that uh you know they will go off to the college football playoff and that's just you're allowing these teams an opportunity to be at the seat of the table as some of these elite programs I'm with you on that one uh top 4 teams get a bye and then 5 through 12 will play each other in the first round um, um and then the I guess that's the second or third weekend of December Quarterfinals and semifinals played in bowl games on a rotating basis. Championship game at a neutral site. So cool. I love this. And I, I feel like um, th- this just does so much for college football right there. What it also does, and I, I hate to really say this, but at, at times I think it continues to devalue some of these other bowl games who will be kind of on the outside looking in from the college football playoff. The goal is to make the playoff. Now what happens to the relevance of all the other bowl games? I also, yeah, that's a good question. That is a very good question. But you have to understand something, okay? 
they're all relevant. I mean, they're relevant now with a uh, with a fourteen playoff. They'll still be relevant with a twelve team playoff because think about this. Okay, you've got another. I don't know. Uh, what? 60 teams that could be looking for bowl games after this is done. So you got to have games for them to play anyway. So I, I don't think these other bowl games go away. It's just going to be interesting to see how much attention is going to be paid to first round games, quarterfinals, semis, finals. Championship. You know, I think the one knock to that, Steve, and the one worry I have is look at the way that we value these bowl games now. And I'm not talking about you and I because you and I are fans of bowl games, but I'm talking about the college football world where it's coaches uh, deciding that they're going to make their move and join another team and be hired away from their program before their bowl game. Or you have players opting out left and right from bowl games. They are the ones who are devaluing these bowl games and not making them relevant as they should be. And I, I think that there's something to play playing in these bowl games right here. I, I just wor- worry about the other bowl games as- beside the uh, college football playoff 12 games. And the truth is this, okay? If you are in the college football playoff, that means that you would have, let's see, is there? would you play a total of four games? If you're not one of the top four, would you have to play four more games on top of your schedule? Wow, that's actually true, right? Because if you're get, getting through this, uh, and then you're not even taking into consideration a conference championship game. That's so what maybe, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So think about this. You could end up, ultimately, playing a 17-game schedule. It's the NFL. That is the NFL. Yeah, that's intense right there. I would even wonder how people would strategize, like, hey, we're not going to play uh, our, our guys if we know we're going to be one of the 12 teams we're not going to play them in the college in the conference championship game I'd be curious to see the strategies behind this and you know as well as I do that if you've got top picks in this CFP model there is no way they're going to opt out of playing in the postseason playoffs you can't do that you can't you have to play in those, of course, because that's the biggest stage of them all. I mean, there's only one way to boost your draft stock at that point, that's and that's right. playing in these games. That's right. But it could be between three and four more games, depending on where you're seated. That is a rough situation. Yeah, it really isn't a test a lot of depth on a lot of these teams. Uh, we see in the playoffs right now that there are injuries that happen, whether it's the semifinals or the championship game itself. I mean, look at Jamison Williams. Uh, he was supposed to be the number one wide receiver coming out of Alabama this year. Tears his ACL in the championship game. So no, you're right. Yeah, it, it's just interesting to kind of look at this. It really will challenge a lot of the teams' depth, but I, I think it's ultimately great for college football when it's all said and done. Oh, it's so it's fascinating to me. But here's the other thing I don't understand. Okay, this is this is going to be the weirder part of this. We keep hearing that ultimately, you know, there's going to be, let's say, a top tier, a middle tier, and a bottom tier. Well, how is that going to work with the CFP? A great, great question. I have no clue how that's going to look because if you have a bottom tier team who goes twelve and zero, are they on the same level as an SEC team who's lost four games? I mean, it's a it's a tough argument right there. And I know that the SEC side of things, they're going to argue, hey, Kentucky, who's eight and four, they should be regarded way more than a team out of the Sun Belt like James Madison, who might go twelve and zero. I'm just giving a hypothetical right now. Yeah, there. I'm with you on that one. Six highest-ranked conference champions and six at-large teams. So, and that's another thing. Um, the question's going to be, you know, a group of five could easily fall in that six, especially if there's only going to be four conferences by the time this thing happens. That's another point is, say you've got ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, and SEC. Well, then what? 
I mean, because the Pac-12 is going to be gone. Chances are that's going to dissolve. Although you wonder, does something like this potentially keep the Pac-12 alive? Could. It really could. I mean, because if you're Arizona State in Arizona, do you really want to go to the Big 12? Or would you rather stay put knowing you could easily have a shot since you're still considered Power 5 to ultimately be playing in this game uh, on a much more regular basis if you go in with fewer teams than if you go in with larger teams? Because that's going to be the interesting thing now. I mean, if Big 10 and SEC are, 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 let's just say, 16 to 20 teams apiece, and only one champion gets in, and then all these other schools are going to fight for the, for the at-large, it doesn't seem like, to me, this news here is in line with what the bigger conferences want to do. If they want to separate and be their own entity, what this doesn't make any sense with their future. I agree a hundred percent because if you're the SEC, you don't necessarily like this. You want to, you like the fact that you can have bragging rights and say, "Hey, we send at least one, sometimes two teams to the college football playoff every year in a four-team format." And and let's be honest, there are four teams that are better than everybody else in college football. I, I feel like the gap has widened much more now than it had, uh, you know, in years past. I think in years past you used to see a lot more upsets and things mm-hmm. like that, but now these teams like Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and Georgia. Georgia. They're stacked with NFL talent all across the roster, making it tough for some of these other teams to try to upset and beat them. But when it comes to this, I could see it helping uh, a conference like the Pac-12 remain intact. Maybe it's the Pac-10, and they have six Maybe. of those teams Maybe. who are who are sticking around, and they acquire four out of, who knows, the AAC or the uh, Mountain West. Maybe they try to lure some of those teams over to the Pac-10 in that case and try to you know build a conference that way. Again, very interesting storylines. Um, uh, we'll get to all this with uh, Shahan in the 4 o'clock hour when he joins us. But in the meantime, we'll talk Oklahoma next. Stay with us. Sports Talk continues. Is uh, Charlie with us? All right. Nice. Going to go to Charlie 1, get our first traffic update, 17 past as we continue. Again, along with Adrian Broadus, I'm Steve Kaplowitz. Excited about our next guest who joins us. He's Eli Letterman. He covers the Oklahoma Sooners for the Tulsa world and uh, gives us uh, a few minutes uh, here to talk about the big one uh, tomorrow afternoon, the first game of the Brent Venables era as head coach. And for the Miners, obviously uh, a game where they want to come out and and be ready to play. Eli, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. and, And thanks so much for the time today. Pleasure to do it. I'm happy to be here. Obviously a lot of excitement out here in in these parts, as you said, tomorrow is the start of the Brent Venables era. So there's a lot of buzz and has been, for the last nine months, really. So it's great to have football here, and it, it should be an exciting opener. Well, uh, just by gauging off the excitement of the spring game, I think that the fans are going to be pumped tomorrow when they show up uh, to watch the game. And and there's also so much interest just because there are so many new players, new faces that are going to be uh, in the starting lineup and, and getting really uh, their feet wet tomorrow against the Miners. Well, I'll say this. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of folks in the stands and Norman might be looking past uh, – UTEP, and I can say this, you know, at least in what they said publicly this week, uh, Brent Venables, Ted Ruth, the defensive coordinator, they surely are not. But one thing UTEP certainly has on, on the Sooners as they come to Norman is they know who they are. This is a pretty, you know, I don't think I need to tell your audience that UTEP's bringing back all the experience it has. Um, a lot of the guys who were there last year, that's more than can be said for, for Oklahoma because, to your point, tomorrow is not just Brent Venables' debut. Dylan Gabriel at quarterback, his first go, Jeff Levy, offensive coordinator, Ted Roof, the defensive coordinator. And uh, as Brent Venables estimated this week, he thinks about 50% of his roster, 
something about there has not played a competitive game at OU. So there's a lot of new here, and, and for us it means a lot to look for. You know, most years you go in at least having a sense, but I'd say just about everywhere up and down this depth chart, I've got questions, I've got things that I'm curious to see, and there's things that we're going to get a first look at tomorrow. What is the biggest question mark that you have as far as Oklahoma goes heading into this game and really heading into the season? Well, I mean, I would say it's, I, I think the floor here is pretty low because I think we know what a Jeff Levy offense can produce, but I'm most interested to see what this offense looks like because we've heard all uh, all spring and ever since you know Brent Venables got hired and brought in Jeff Levy about this tempo offense. So between um, what it's going to look like, how they're going to operate, and, and Dylan Gabriel running it, of course he had experience doing that with Jeff Levy at UCF a few years ago. Uh, but beyond that, then who are the players that fit, fit in? We, we probably know that Eric Gray is going to be the, the lead back, but they use a lot of running backs in the Jeff Levy system. And then the pass catching, really beyond Marvin Mims, who's, who's the reigning back-to-back uh, receiving yards leader for the Sooners, you you got to look at that group and just wonder who's going to fill in beh- behind him. And so all of that makes the offense, I, I would say, particularly compelling. So it's interesting because I hear tempo and I immediately wonder how quick it will be in terms of trying to get plays in without a huddle and just really testing the stamina of your offense, your offensive line, and just trying to get up and down the field as fast as you can. Yeah, and I, I think I think we know they're going to try to move fast, but it's like, all right, how fast are they going to move? And then in week one against UTEP, how fast can they move into what level of success, you know? I think we know you can you can look at Ole Miss's offense from last year and and the old UCF offenses and see what a Jeff Levy offense looks like when it's humming and maybe that's where this team will be come October and November. But how far along are they? I think we're going to find that out tomorrow. And then kind of the counter to that, if if your offense is moving getting off the field really fast, what does that mean for your defense? And we know Brent Venables, you know he's going to be judged in large part his success in this whole tenure is is what's his defense going to be because that's his background. Um, but what is that going to do if, if the offense is, is successful but is not spending a lot of time on the field? That's pressure on the defense, and this is a defense you know, with as many question marks as the offense right now. How does this fan base currently look at uh, Brent Venables? Because you have uh, a coach in Lincoln Riley who leaves the program, goes to USC abruptly. Uh, no one really saw this one coming. And, and on the other side, you have Brent Venables, who is an exciting coach. Everybody got a chance to see what he did at Clemson. What's the overall feeling for this head coach like? I think there's some folks in Norman who would tell you right now that he can walk on water. Uh, I, I think there's certainly that. That, that's one end of the spectrum, but I really do think there's a lot of excitement. And If you think back to, to late November last year, Lincoln Riley leaves. If you could have penciled in the perfect profile of a coach to come back, a coach who's won a national title on Bob Stoops' staff, who's been one of the top defensive assistants in the country for the last decade, and somebody who knows this program and knew it at its best and kind of knows what it takes to succeed here, in that sense, he's perfect, and it's why the last eight, nine months, you know, all this time where a game has not been played yet, he has just collected all the hype. I mean, you, you, you spoke about the spring game before. I don't know many spring games that are, that are attracting 76,000 people into an 85,000-seat 85, stadium. I think tomorrow we're going to see that place full, and it's going to be quite an environment. But the, the excitement is there, and I think in part that is fueled by a lot of animus uh, toward that coach out in L.A. I mean, a lot of people in Norman won't even say his name. Um, Lincoln Riley, there's certainly some of that, but then there is genuine excitement about what Brent Venables brings. Um, he's got the history, he's got the personality, and he knows this place. And I think all those things have made for a perfect storm in terms of the excitement. Uh, problem there, and I'm, I'm not predicting that things aren't going to go well, but 
that only buys you so much. You know, you can be really excited. You can play that part. But tomorrow is when the games get started and, and we really see what, what this team is going to be now and, and where they'll be in the future. Eli Letterman with us uh, here on Sports Talk covers the Oklahoma Sooners for the Tulsa World and giving us uh, the lowdown on uh, what he's had a chance to see. Have, have practices been open to the media or do they keep them pretty, uh, pretty tight and, and closed up? Well, it's been an interesting training camp because uh, we, we did get a lot of, of pretty solid access to the practices themselves. Uh, the other end of that, though, was that a, a few days into camp um, was came Kale Gundy's resignation, the wide receivers coach uh, who resigned from the program, his longest tenured assistant, uh, who'd remained across several staffs, uh, who, who resigned after using um, a racial slur in a team meeting. And that was right, that was in fact the night before the first open practice. And what that meant was that they pulled back a lot on the access. We didn't. We spoke to players on August second. Didn't speak to them again until uh, August twenty fourth, I believe. And so we we had a lot of uh, access in terms of what we could see, but we didn't have a lot of access to the team there for a few weeks. Um, but as far as what we've seen in practice, it's been physical, um, and, and that's something I think that they're trying to bring back is, is to restore these defenses at Oklahoma. For you know, I think. Most of this modern era, the last decade, you would look at Oklahoma and, and think about the offenses and Baker Mayfield and the quarterback. But I think, you know, with Brent Venables, the idea there is that they're going to get back to some of those hard-hitting Oklahoma defenses. And we've certainly seen some of that in practice, but I, I do know this week from being around the team, they're really ready to play somebody else. And I think some of that, some of that has to just do with the fact that for nine months, we've been talking about so much inward. They're ready to look outward. I love the three sophomores on that defense. Ethan Downs, uh, the defensive end, Danny Stutzman, the will linebacker, and then also Billy Bowman, who does a little bit of everything. You know what those might be? If we're, if we're talking about the ceiling of this team, those three guys could possess it on defense because uh, Ethan Downs is, is getting is, is kind of looked at, I think, right now as, as the guy on the line. Danny Stutzman will play a big role at linebacker, and then Billy Bowman is – his talent is, is kind of undisputed. We know what he's what he's capable of, but last year he got moved around to so many different spots. This year they finally got him planted at, at safety, and that seems to be the place where he can be his best and use the most of his talent. And I think if he if he lives up to it and, and is comfortable in that spot and settles in, he might hold the keys to that secondary and, and could be the difference between this being a, a good Oklahoma team and whatever that means in the Big 12, or, or maybe something bigger, if, if he can really lock in. More with back with uh, Eli Letterman right now, covers the Oklahoma Sooners uh, for the Tulsa World. You can check out uh, Tulsa World online at TulsaWorld.com, as well as uh, checking out uh, Eli's Twitter handle, which is by BY, and then his name, Eli Letterman. And you can follow him on Twitter to uh, stay abreast of what he's got going on with uh, the Sooners. And by the way, there's a ton of content on the website. It is insane how much uh, good content you got out there. Uh, I'm curious about Gabriel. He was so productive at Central Florida. And then he gets back one of his former coaches that he worked with a few years ago. Um, I know he's only 5'11", so if there's one knock, it's the lack of size. But what has impressed you the most of watching the uh, left-handed uh, thrower, at least thus far? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to like think about there. There's the reunion with Jeff Levy. There's the, simply the fact that he's a lefty, which uh, can bring you know more or less of you know some in the spring. That was kind of the question was you know the ball coming out differently, a different spin. But I think that was maybe well, whether it was overblown or has been figured out. You know, that's not a thing. But with him, you mentioned the size. I think you know Brent Venables was asked about it this week, 
And that, that's a little bit, I wouldn't say a dated thing of just looking at a quarterback and saying, oh, he's 5'11", he's not big enough. But he said, if you're 5'11", but you can still make the throws mm-hmm. and, and you can be an accurate passer and do this, that, get the ball downfield, it doesn't really matter all that much. And He's got his mobility. And so uh, it's, it's like a question that people have asked. But I think, you know, over time, Dylan Gabriel has proven that it doesn't, you know, it's only so much of a factor because he comes here with over 8,000 career yards. He was successful at UCF. And I think, you know, consider that the Brent Venables came in and one of the first things that happened uh, in the first month was, was Caleb Williams leaves. You're talking about a guy who, I, you know, I think at USC at some point, if not already, is a Heisman contender. He was brilliant for the Sooners last year. You lose him and you wonder what's next. And, and Dylan Gabriel is, is a pretty safe bet, I think. Uh, we don't know what the ceiling is. Obviously, the expectations at a school like Oklahoma where you've had Baker Mayfield and, and Kyler Murray are high at that position. And maybe he can get to, you know, pushing up against that because I think this offense is going to score a lot and put up points. But if you want to talk about year one, you're replacing uh, a highly, highly rated quarterback with a, a pretty safe veteran bet who has done nothing since he's come in but be a leader. Really, took, there was a hole in this locker room and he kind of filled that. So on the leadership end, you've got him there. And I really do think on the field with Jeff Levy, they're going to, they're going to find ways to put up points, put up yards and, and, uh, uh, my guess is that he's not going to be their issue. If it's down the, if toward the end of the year uh, they, they struggle, it won't be, I don't believe, on offense. You know, you mentioned Mims earlier. They also get back uh, Theo Weiss, who's healthy, which is a big story and for the receiving core at Oklahoma. And, and I love the freshman, Jaden Gibson. I saw the one-handed catch the spring game. I know a lot's been said about Gibson and what he could bring to the table, especially with fellow freshman Nick Anderson. Those two could really team up for years to come. Uh, I'm just wondering how those wide receivers have adjusted without Kale Gundy and what the receiving room has been like, knowing they've got an interim uh, coach, and, and ultimately, since it's such an important position, uh, you know, a guy that's been there so long, how does this receiving room now adjust? Yeah, well, I mean, on the front end there, I mean, there's so many, you mentioned Theo Weiss, and I think he is almost an example of so many guys on this roster, and it's what makes the depth chart so interesting, but with so many question marks is, you know he's got the talent. Uh, but for some reason, you know, injury and just production in the past has not has only shown flashes. There's so many of those guys on this roster, and it's what makes it so intriguing. Uh, and beyond him, I mean, Jaden Gibson, you asked about camp. Getting to watch him, I mean, he does not look like a freshman. 6'5", about 200 pounds, that does not look like a freshman body. So I'm intrigued to see what we see of him. But as far as the, the room goes, you know, LaDamian Washington uh, came in. He spent one year uh, as a position coach at Southern and came in as an analyst. Uh, he had some recommendations from a few guys on the staff, and Brent Venables interviewed him and, and was sold immediately. And he, even in those early months as an offensive analyst, and those are kind of vague roles, he, he made an impact within the program. He made an impact in recruiting, and, and now he's been thrust into the biggest job of his career uh, through a pretty unfortunate incident, obviously very last minute in the middle of, of training camp. Um, but he, from the sound of it, has settled in really well. There was excitement uh, in that wide receiver's room when he was named the replacement uh, and, and essentially Brent Venables made it clear that he would he would be the interim receivers coach through the season. They're, they were not going to try to make a move this time of year. Uh, and and by all accounts, he's really settled in and, and he's got experience. I think that has to help right now. I mean, if you consider where he stood, you know, August 3rd, he, or excuse me, August 4th, he gets thrust into this role. Well, he's got experience. He was a receiver um, at, at the University of Missouri in the early 2010s and and I think that element of it, what he's got there, and then probably some credibility. He, he, the guys in that room know he's been in their shoes. 
Uh, and I think to this point, it's been a pretty successful marriage. Eli, when it comes to just roster construction with all the new players that we've been talking about this whole time, how what, what do you think the philosophy is for Brent Venables moving forward? Is it transfer portal, get the guys that he can out of the portal and, and sprinkle in some high school recruits? Or what, what do you kind of see as far as his philosophy goes for building a roster? Yeah, I, I think, you know, he they had a lot of work to do to just plug the gaps. I mean, uh, on this roster for this season, they... They have a lot of remaining talent, but they lost a lot as well. So they went to the portal to, to fill a lot of those holes. And I think, you know, you look at Dylan Gabriel, you look at McCade Matoyer on the offensive line, it's hard to pull experienced uh, offensive linemen out of the portal because nobody has enough offensive linemen ever. Uh, and so those are good gets. There's guys on the defense that can make an impact. So they did well there, but, you know, I, I don't think you have to look much further than the summer they had on the recruiting trail where they were patient. And uh, people were getting a little sweaty in Norman when, when on June 1 they only had four guys signed to the class. Now it's uh, September 2nd. It's 22 guys in that class, and they're up to seventh in the nation uh, in, as far as nationally and in, in, in the team ranking. So they're going to look to build this program through, through high school recruiting. I'm, I'm sure, like, like all these top programs, they're going to use the portal every year to fill some holes. But I think uh, this summer showed you that they're committed to a certain way of recruiting. I think they're going to be more patient than maybe some programs. Uh, Brent Venables made the kind of the now somewhat, I wouldn't say infamous, but the line people took away in the spring was uh, a commitment is not a reservation. He, he was not about guys committing to OU and then taking other visits. They were going to wait and wait for the right guys. And this summer kind of uh, was a bit of uh, validation, I think, for that strategy because they did so well. So they're, they're still going to they're going to recruit out of high schools hard and, and try to recruit up against the best of them, especially once they're in the SEC. But uh, the portal, I think, you know, as we all know, is here to stay. When it's all said and done uh, tomorrow, what do you think the outcome is going to be? How lopsided uh, do you think it'll get? And and are fans like uh, looking to judge this team based on the performance against UTEP? I mean, I don't think there's a. If we agree, eighty-five thousand people are going to show up in there, and however many of those are are OU fans, a good portion, obviously. I don't think many of them are are concerned as of right now that UTEP is going to give them a run. But I think there's a lot of respect from this coaching staff of what UTEP has and, and the experience and what they did last year. And certainly hearing them speak this week, they didn't feel like last week the scoreline necessarily was a reflection of, of where UTEP was in that game. So there's a lot of respect, but I think really it might that might come down to the, the, how big this win could be for the Sooners in terms of scoreline. That might come down to how good this offense is from the start. I mean, are we seeing them struggle through the first quarter trying to figure things out? Um, or, or are they humming from the jump? Uh, the other end of that, I, I think this is going to be the first test for the secondary because the, the success I've seen the Miners have has been through the air. And you know, last week, uh, the passing game was was one of the strong points. So if if this secondary isn't ready, I think at, at least early on we might see them struggle a bit, and and that would would certainly dictate uh, just how close this game is. But I'm I'm really excited to, to see kind of everything I've laid out. I mean, we've, we've been talking about the Sooners all spring without and summer without being able to see them really play. So I'm excited for that, and, and having co- I, I spoke a month ago with, with Dana Dimmel, and I'm really excited to see the team he's got as well. Follow Eli on Twitter. That's by Eli Letterman, and you can check out his work at TulsaWorld.com. Hey, enjoy the conversation, Eli. Thanks for dropping in and giving us uh, the lowdown on the Sooners, and uh, hey, we'll look forward to keep track uh, and keep tabs with you during the season. Absolutely. Happy to come on anytime. Awesome. He's uh, Eli Letterman, folks, as we continue here on Sports Talk. 19 in front of four. Back with more as uh, Sports Talk continues. But first, uh, we'll come back uh, with, uh, we have ABC7 News? No? Okay, no ABC7 News. We'll be back with more in a moment. 600 ESPN El Paso. 
We continue here on Sports Talk. You're playing the hits today, man. How are you going to keep it up for two and a half hours? I know. Seriously, Steve, I had to freshen up the uh, the library this uh, this weekend. Start a football season, Look get some you. new fo- new songs in the rotation. So, yeah, there we go. I think it was Elton John, Pink Floyd, and, and some classic Journey. Yeah, that was the rotation right there. Oh, how, you, how are you going to keep it up for the next uh, hour and 45 <laughs> minutes? How are you going to do it? No clue, Steve. We're going to have to hope that I can keep it up for sure. Good luck with that, man. Appreciate that. I love it. You're dipping into the KLAQ2 library is what you're doing. That's right. The Q2 library has such good stuff. And oh. they just refreshed it, so that's why we got some new tunes that we can dip into. Really? Yeah. Well, oh. at least some. Some like tracks. That. Yeah, All most right. definitely. Nice. I, I love, listen, I love freshening up music on the show, especially with our library. It's perfect. So good job there. You're, you're making, uh, put a smile on my face here in our first hour of the show. So well done there, Adrian. All right. So we just heard from Eli. I thought he was great. Good. You know, listen. I've maybe I'm maybe I'm just being um too judgmental but anytime I've ever watched UTEP uh, go up against a, a tempo offense it they always struggle with that always good teams especially now I'm not talking weak teams I'm talking good teams and if OU is going to throw an up tempo fast-paced offense at the minors' defense, especially those defensive backs where they get rid of the ball so quick that the defense doesn't really get a chance to try to get a shot in on Dylan Gabriel. Oh, my God. This could be a long, long afternoon. Yeah, I feel like if it, if that's the case, uh, UTEP really should should adjust defensively and try to just only rush three up front uh, and then have a, an extra guy helping them out in the secondary uh, at that nickel position. I, I, you know, UTEP has done that where they, go, they deviate from rushing four guys or rushing three guys, and I'd be very concerned with the minors if they can't slow down this up-tempo offense. And, and ultimately, when you look at this UTEP, UTEP team, you're right, because you know, you've got some veterans in there in, in Justin Prince and Dennis Barnes. Kobe Hilton looked really good in this first game. We already know that the lack of experience was with Latrez Shelton and uh, Josiah Allen. So the corners are going to have their work cut out for them. But you've got, um, you know, you've got good safeties. You've got the nickel with experience in Dennis Barnes. I'm also interested to see a guy that's going to have to play huge this year is Jerome Wilson Jr. He is because if he's going to be the guy at the Mike position that's going to replace Breon Hayward uh, and. And Jerome Wilson's played in 14 games, but he's only started this first game against North Texas. He's going to have to really rise to the occasion in a big way. Yeah, Wilson's somebody who I, I really like coming out of last year. I thought he could play anywhere. Like he, He's kind of like Tyson Wilson, not no relation to Jerome Wilson, but he can play that linebacker spot. He could play a little bit of safety if he needed to. Uh, but Jerome Wilson could kind of go all over the field. He's athletic. He just doesn't have a lot of experience yep. under his belt, and that's the only knock you could really have on him, and, and he's not Breon Hayward. I mean, Breon Hayward's somebody who put up 100-plus total tackles last year, and uh, he's he's probably somebody who's just a little bit better than Tyrese Knight, and Tyrese Knight might be their best tackler on the team right now. So uh, when you lose production like that, it's a huge drop-off to your linebacker core, uh, but the front six for the Miners is their strong point. They just have to get back to their identity, and that's slowing the game down, getting off on third 
down conversions yeah. and not allowing teams to to continue to pile up on these drives and go high tempo on them. They were one of the best against uh, third downs last year, and I think they gave up six out of twelve against North Texas. Yeah, first six of eight, and that's the t- that's the one that you're really looking at. The first six third down conversions out of the eight ones that they attempted for North Texas, they converted, including two touchdowns on third down plays, and I, I think those were the ones that you scratch your head at the most if you're a minor fan because they get into a uh, North Texas got into a third down and goal situation they convert and score on that play and then in the second half they did the same thing a third down conversion which they flipped into a touchdown and that that just can't happen if you're UTEP's defense I'm so interested to see if they give up big plays listen I, I mean Knight and Wilson could have a ton of tackles on Saturday because their defense might be on the field the whole game and trying to just stop Oklahoma who's just going to be going up and down uh, for the entire contest. That, to me, is also one of the things is they might get a lot of tackles in this game because Oklahoma might be running 80 plays on offense. I really like some of the secondary members like uh, Justin Prince, Josiah Allen, and uh, of course Latrez Shelton, but the one knock you might have against those guys is the size, yeah. Steve. Uh, Kobe Hilton checks in at about 6'1", and he has the size to him, uh, but I, I am a little concerned about some of the other undersized minors in the secondary because some of the these lengthier uh, Oklahoma players could just pick them apart. Well, Latrez Shelton six one, and Deshaun Trotter is six two. Okay, good, good to know right there with Trotter. They like to throw him out as well. I, I, Elijah Johnson is somebody who's gotten some time with the minors, yep. and he played last week. Tyreek James is another guy as a safety who could be playing this weekend as well. I, I just get a little concerned about UTEP's size across the board, uh, or lack thereof in the, in the in the defensive backfield. I get that completely. I really do. All right, uh, one hour is going to be in the books. We're going to come back. We got ninety minutes to go. We're going to talk um, El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame. Coming up uh, next with Bob Aguide of the Hall. In fact, it's Hall of Fame weekend. Three days they're going to be celebrating the class of 2022. Bob will give us the lowdown as we continue. And then Shahan Jaraja with the big story, college football playoff expansion to 12. We'll do all this coming up in our 4 o'clock hour, 600 ESPN El Paso. Start of hour number two here on Sports Talk as we continue. Hall of Fame weekend for El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame. Bob Aguide joins us from the hall. I know he's got uh, some of the inductees with him right now. Bob, let's start with you as we begin our uh, second hour here on a Friday on Sports Talk. Welcome to the show. Uh, Welcome back, I should say, Bob. And I know this is what it's all about, right? A three-day celebration for the class of 2022. That's that's correct. That's correct, Steve. And uh, we're... We're just getting ready to, to start uh, part one of our uh, of our ceremonies. We've got the event this year, and we've got a meet and greet uh, event that's coming up. And then, of course, tomorrow we have the first pitch at the Chihuahua Games, and then Sunday's our big event, which is a banquet uh, here at the Wyndham Hotel. And the banquet's already sold out, so congratulations on that. And I know uh, for the five Hall of Famers, which feature uh, four former players, not to mention um, a member of the media that will tell you he played uh, college baseball back in the day in Lou Romano, uh, a pretty exciting group of athletes, that's for sure. That's right. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the wonderful thing about it is that some of these guys, they played against each other, and they've lost track of each other, and now they've reunited today uh, as, uh, as as former competitors against each other. But uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And it really is. And by the way, media day going on right now, uh, along with yes. the with with the welcome dinner for the Hall of Fame members. So that's how it starts. How about this, Bob? 
35th anniversary this year. That's a big deal as well. Yes, uh, we started this. Uh, actually, a gentleman by the name of Buff uh, Morrison is the one who started this uh, this uh, this journey back in '88, uh, and uh, this is our 35th anniversary. So, looking good, looking good, and getting bigger. That's right. And in addition to the Hall of Fame, you also have the annual award winners that you give out, whether it's yes. Player of the Year in high school, coaches as well, and you also have College Player of the Year, which I, I think no doubt uh, Ivan Melendez uh, earned about every award on the planet this year, Bob. That, that is right, correct. And uh, unfortunately, he cannot be here, but his family is going to be here, and uh, we're going to do a little presentation for him on Sunday. And then our two coaches are uh, uh, Coach Beard from um, uh, Del Valle and Rick Solis from Riverside. Uh, those are our two coaches. And we have a tremendous uh, player that's going to be the high school player of the year. And uh, he's with America's uh, Armani Raygosa. Great, great individual. Nice, nice young man. I love it. Bob Aguide with us from the El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame. Tell me about um, you know how the nominations and voting works. For people wondering, how do uh, individuals get nominated and voted into the hall? Okay, the, the process is, uh, it's, it's really not a difficult process. Uh, you believe the nominations uh, can be turned into our nomination uh, committee, and they start meeting in January. And then uh, once the uh, uh, nomination committee uh, approves those as actually the ones that can be considered then they're they're taken up to the the, the board and the board makes a final decision um and uh basically that's the process and of course they have to present a complete resume of uh, what they've done where they've done it and always always we verify all the statistics that they bring us you've got uh athletes this year that were not only great uh, el paso players but a lot of these were, were drafted uh, by the pros, played in professional organizations. Uh, one is even a, uh, an international scout right now in the big league. So uh, I love the fact that there are so many, uh, you know, so many big league ties to this class. Correct. Yes. Uh, we've got uh, uh, with, uh, with, uh, Kyle Anson, who uh, actually was tied into the, uh, the Yankees, and uh, some of the uh, other players also have uh, – with the Orioles and and also with the Dodger organization, so so you know we we um, we're very proud of these guys, and of course Romano just walked in, so uh, we're 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 very proud with the selections that we have. Bob, I've been to DBAT on the west side of town, and I know that they have uh, in their indoor cage area all of the uh, inductees year by year from the El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame. Correct. That is correct, and that's a partnership that we entered with uh, with DBAT, and uh, we got a little uh, showcase there that uh, we've uh, put all the the uh, the years of flags for all the uh, the gentlemen who have been inducted, and it's it's getting big, it's getting it's growing because we just have a small place, but now it's going to get a little bit larger. It's a nice place, and you know we're very thankful for um, the the uh, the coaches up there, Coach uh, um, uh, Mike, not Mike. Uh, Powers, Coach Powers, Coach Andy Powers. That's right, yeah, Andy Andy Powers for for uh, allowing us to be there and to give us a space to be there. Now uh, I know you've got some Hall of Famers that are in the area within earshot. If you want, we can even do some uh, some live interviews uh, with some of the members that are going to be going into the hall. Who's uh, who's close yep. by that you'd like to uh, let us say hello to? Well, the closest uh, we got uh, 
Lou Romano here. Uh, maybe you want to talk to him. Well, nah, we already talked to him a lot. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, we'll Alex talk to Pena. we'll talk to Lou. We got we'll put Lou on. That'll be Alex Pena is here. No, you know, I'm, I was just kidding with you. You can put Lou on the phone. We'll have some fun with Lou, and then we'll talk to Alex after that. That's fine. Yeah. Here's Alex. Okay. Hello? Alex, uh, it's uh, Steve Kaplow. It's Adrian Broadus here on Sports Talk, 600 ESPN El Paso. Congratulations on getting into the El Paso uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys very much. Does it seem like uh, it was just yesterday that you were out there uh, playing out at Irvin High? <laughs> it does. It does. You know, there's when it's when it's. When it's your dream to make it to the major leagues and um, and you love the game, it's, it's like you were out there yesterday and you miss it. Well, now what years were you at Irvin? I graduated in 91. Okay. I was there 88, 89, 90, and 91. I got you. And then from there, you went to uh, New Mexico Junior College and at that point uh, then on to the Orioles, which makes me wonder, you're a couple of years before Rocky Coppinger. Did the two of you ever cross paths in the Orioles organization, Alex? Matter of fact, we did in Bluefield, West Virginia. There was three El Pasoans on the team. It was myself, Rocky Coppinger, and Carlos Chavez. Wow. That is awesome. People don't even that realize that, do they? They they don't realize that, really, late 80s, early 90s, there were a ton of guys like yourself, uh, not just excelling in high school, but having a chance to play college and pro ball as well. Yeah, there was. Um I played with Carlos Chavez at uh at New Mexico Junior College, and we when he got drafted, ninety two, I got drafted ninety three, and then we met in nineteen ninety four in Bluefield, and Rocky. That's a year Rocky, he got drafted. I think it was the second time he got drafted and he mm-hmm. signed. But we were all up there together, and there was other guys um, playing. There was uh, Armando Almanza was part of that group. A guy yeah. named Rick Garcia went to the Marlins. Yeah, you had a good so you had a, you had a good group of good group of players. Now you also spent some time in the Diamondbacks organization, correct? I did. In 1995, I got released. I was playing in Frederick in the um, Carolina League, and then um, I got picked up by the Diamondbacks. They were just starting the organization, and their first team was in Visalia in the California League. And then I ended up signing with them, and I went to uh, the California League. Alex Pena with us, part of the class of 2022 for the El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame. Alex, uh, for you, was there one particular highlight of your baseball career that really stood out? You know what? Um, in 1994, um, I was uh, pitcher of the year uh, slash player of the year for that uh, Bluefield Oriole team. So I put up some good numbers. I think my year was like .042. Wow. Um, I had come in and close out for Carlos Chavez and Rocky Coppinger. And um, I picked up some wins, so that probably was probably the the biggest highlight uh, in my professional career. In my in my junior college career, um, in New Mexico Junior College, I threw a no hitter, and we were playing back then in a tournament in Dallas, and we were facing number one JUCO team was um, Seminole Junior College, and I ended up beating them. So that was pretty pretty sweet, also. I don't blame you. Uh, Alex Pena with us. By the way, you can always uh, tell Rocky that uh, he, you were the player of the year, not him, out at Bluefield. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like that a lot, too. Uh, what does it mean to you all these years later getting a chance to be honored uh, in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, you know, like I said when we started talking, you know, it's always been a dream. Baseball has always been my passion. Um, I, I, ever since I – once I came back to El Paso, um, I graduated from UTEP, became a coach. I've been coaching in the high schools. I'm at the head coach at Burgess now. And uh, to be uh, to get recognized, you know, for something that you love, 
something that you worked hard at is it's a it's a great honor. I love it. Uh, what's your Burgess team going to look like this year, Alex? I, I think we're going to be pretty good. We'll be up there. Good. We got some kids that can play play some ball this year. Well, I'm excited for you. That's good. I'm happy you're going to be you. honored this weekend. Uh, are there any other Hall of Famers that are close by you want to keep passing the phone to so we'll keep winging this? There is uh, uh, Rick Solis. Definitely. He's, let's, uh, he's a coach at Riverside. Let's let's Very talk well. to Coach Solis. That'd be great. Okay, here he is. Hello? Rick, Steve Kaplowitz, Adrian Broadus here on Sports Talk. Congratulations on getting into the Hall. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Uh, tell me, for someone like yourself, who just like uh, Alex Pena, went from playing ball, professional ball, into uh, coaching and coaching high school here, uh, what's the ride been like for you? Well, I tell you what, coaching is a lot different than playing. Um, you know, it's, it's easy when, when you just got to do your job, but when you got to teach everyone else to do it, to, to do a job, it's, it's a little bit different, and so I've, I've had to learn a little bit. Luckily, you know, I coached under Jesse Munoz at Americas, and, and so uh, he, that helped me along, but but uh, just, you know, for me, it's just representing El Paso is, is what, well, as a player and as a coach, is what, you know, I'm, I'm most proud of. Does it seem like it was just yesterday that uh, you were playing ball out at Isleta? Yeah, it really does. Yeah, especially going back and playing my brother out there and, 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 and visiting the field and stuff. It's, it's, like, it's like we never left. Now, as far as uh, your pro ball was concerned, you played with the Dodgers organization. What can you tell us about that, Rick? I signed as a free agent. Um, after my senior year, the, uh, the area scout happened to be recruiting or scouting, you know, a number of our pitchers. And I just happened to be playing behind them so many times. And, and so when they had an opening for a, for a middle infielder, he gave me a call and, and he put me in the pool of, of, of candidates and I ended up getting it. And, and I went off to, to Montana for a year. Um, and we ended up winning the pioneer league that year and I got myself a ring, but you know, the writing was on the wall. I, I think that I played my last game, you know, at that level. Um, I probably could have squeezed out another couple of years, but, but I think that was it. So I decided to, to hang him up and then and then move on, um, you know, finish my degree and, and then move on. What was the highlight for you that year in Montana? It was when it was winning the uh, the championship because we played against a really good team in the Angels, a bunch of future big leaguers, Eric Ibar and and Alberto Cayaspo and and a few other guys that that were on that team and and we won we won the series and and we were able to to travel back with the. You know, and, and earn a ring. Nice. And as far as uh, you know, transitioning into high school coaching, uh, how's you mentioned you were you worked under some some great ones. Uh, you know, getting a chance to teach the game of baseball to a, a bunch of really you know fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old kids that all have the same aspirations as you. It sounds like you've come full circle. Absolutely, and you know, I, I've been lucky to have played for some some amazing coaches. Uh, two of them that were, you know, ended up being head coaches in the SEC. And, and so, you know, I always draw back, you know, I always go back to, you know, what they would do, kind of they would ha- how they would handle situations and just the way that they, they handled our teams. And, and so I, I draw from that a lot. And so, you know, it's something for me. I, I never had anything like that, you know, in high school. So for me to be able to share what I learned, you know, it's, it's important to me. And, and I, I hope that, you know, those kids, I'm sure they appreciate it. So. Well, listen, oh, yeah. congratulations. Enjoy the next three days. It's going to be a lot of fun. Is Romano nearby? He's, he's here. Let me go get him for you. All thank right, you, thank Steve. You. And, All right, Coach. And I appreciate you guys. Good to hear from you. Coach uh, Rick Solis, you got it. So uh, we got to at least let this guy say hello. That's just a must.
It's a definite must, Steve. We uh, we have to say Hello. what's up to our good friend, Lou Romano. Yeah, we do. Hey, uh, what's up, boys? Congratulations. Um, <laughs> this is the first of three days for you. How excited are you being uh, ready to go for this El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame induction? Yeah, you want to laugh? I was so juiced to get here. I made a wrong turn and ended up in a, an airport parking lot hotel that, uh, parking lot that I could not get out of. I, I was considering calling airport security to say, will you please get me out of this parking lot? Because the gates wouldn't rise. So I took a wrong turn in such a hurry to get here. I took a wrong turn and got locked in a parking lot. Could have so been yeah, worse. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty juiced. Could have taken a wrong turn and wound up in uh, J-Town. So look at it that way. You know, you're, you're all right. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, meanwhile, we just talked to both uh, you know Alex Pena and Rick Solis. They've gone from playing to coaching. How wild is it knowing that a lot of these guys you covered while you were here in El Paso? It's it, Steve, it's so weird, you know, and now with my involvement um, at Coronado High because, you know, my, my stepsons, you know, and their coaches and their dads and Rocky Coppinger drops by or Joe Coppinger comes by. I'm like, man, I, I remember the 92 playoff series against Lubbock Monterey. You know, we start <laughs> talking about that. So it, it's a little weird, I got to tell you. But it's also a reminder, you know, that, that I'm getting old. <laughs> You know what? That's awesome. That's you are awesome. getting old. That, that is very true. That is very, yeah. very true. So yeah. um, now I know today is media day. Tomorrow you'll be at the ballpark. That's going to be fun. Throwing out the first pitch, hanging with the Chihuahuas. Then you got the induction banquet uh, on uh, Sunday. There's just a lot going on. It's going to be a busy weekend for you. Yeah, um, I actually couldn't wait. You know, because Steve, like you were mentioning, a lot of these guys I've talked about on TV, and maybe half of them I've actually come to know. But there are a lot of them I've never met. You know, like here, I walked in tonight, and there's Coach Solis. Man, I'm not used to seeing him without his uniform on and a hat on. I'm like, is that Coach Solis? You know, they look totally different when they're not in their, in their elements. So, yeah, this is, a, this is a fun weekend. I've never been on the Chihuahuas field to throw out a pitch, so I'm looking forward to that. Like, I've never been out there, you know, in front of a crowd, you know, for practice and stuff, but not in front of a crowd. So I can't wait for that. And then Sunday, we'll have some food, have a couple of drinks, and talk about baseball. I great, love it. great, great weekend. Good for you. Uh, just please, whatever you do, when you throw out the first pitch, don't do what Rene Romo did 20 years ago. You know, I tried to YouTube that the other day. I couldn't find it. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Good. <laughs> I mean, I've still got some athletic talent. Good. Romo had none. That's true. None. He still has yeah. none. Um, and, and, and by the way, that, doesn't exi- that does not exist on YouTube. I've never been able to find that anywhere, so don't worry I know. about it. I don't know what happened to it. Uh. I know. All right, listen, enjoy yourself. Please, thank Bob for us. He started us off, did a great job, and uh, always appreciate you dropping in for a few. Hey, you're coming Sunday, right? That's the plan. Okay, all right. Well, I'll I'll touch base with you. All right, I'll talk to you then. All right, bye, guys. Thank you. Lou Romano joining us here from uh, the El Paso Baseball Hall of Fame class of 2022. Come back, Shahan Raja, right after Charlie Wan. He's got a traffic update for us. 23 passed. So we continue here on Sports Talk. Big news today for college football fans that the football playoff is expanding to a 12-team format. We've been waiting for this guest for a while, haven't we, Adrian? Yeah, we definitely have. It's always great to talk with Shahan Raja of CBS Sports. And today, we couldn't have scripted any better, Steve, the talking to him on such a huge day for the college football playoff. Yeah, Shahan, I'll be honest with you. We lucked into this one. So thanks for keeping your commitment and, uh, and joining us on the show today. We appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Again, uh, the timing couldn't have been better. No, that's true. Hey, by the way, before we get started, 
you were more the pessimistic fan when it comes to UTEP football before the start of the season. We questioned you. We were worried about you. But uh, you seem to know a little something when it comes to that. So congratulations. You know, of all the people that were predicting uh, what the Miners were going to do, you kind of stayed on the very conservative end. And, and so far, that, that looks uh, pretty pretty smart out of the gate, Shahan. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I was disappointed. There were so many opportunities for UTEP to take over that game. And, you know, it just feels like it was just a few too many mistakes. One thing that I was definitely a little underwhelmed by was I thought that the offensive line would have a chance to play a lot better. But they really got beaten up pretty good by that UNC defensive front. And, you know, they struggled to run the ball. It was a lot of Gavin Hardison having to just make plays. And uh, definitely a definitely a disappointing result and not what I hoped to see on, on that first weekend. I, I thought it was going to be one of the better games the first weekend, and I was right. But, unfortunately, it uh, didn't go UTEP's way. How tough is tomorrow afternoon going to be in Norman? <laughs> well, it's the uh, it's the debut of a new coach. Uh, people are as excited as they've ever been at Oklahoma. You know, obviously entering a new era, wanting to kind of prove themselves after Lincoln Riley left for the West Coast. So I, I think it's going to be a pretty bad day, unfortunately. Yeah, that's probably pretty accurate. All right, let's talk about the college football playoff expanding to the twelve team format. Now, the first thing I was thinking about when I heard this news is that if the college football top wants to eventually separate and you know the top 50 60 programs are kind of the top level and then we've got the next group below that and then maybe the next group below that i'm trying to figure out how this whole thing is going to work with the 12 team format that the playoff voted for today because i was thinking that college football is going to be changing so much in the next few years that we might not even have anything that even resembles this kind of a format so this story threw me for a little bit of a loop today, Shahan. Yeah, I think that in some ways, moving towards this format is actually a little bit of a course correction. You know, especially the thing that I love the most about it is guaranteeing those six auto bids and having them be the top six ranked conference champions, regardless of uh, of whether they're Power Five or not. So, like back in 2020, I believe uh, Oregon would have been the conference champion, but they would have been behind. I believe it was the Mountain West and AAC champions, which yeah. which I think is really cool. You know, I think that's a, a good situation that we can have that possibility. And so I, I think that the funny thing is, if right now you're Washington or Oregon, certainly if you can get the Big Ten payout, you do it. But you're feeling a whole lot better right this second about where you stand with potential access to the college football playoff every year. If you're in the group of five, the fact that we know that there will be a spot available to at least one group of five team, I think is huge. You know, whether it is from the Sun Belt, whether it is from the Mountain West, whether it's from the American, whether it's from conferences, we don't know. But but if you have a great, great, great season and are one of the top ranked conference champions, you're going to have a chance. I, I think that's awesome. And so I think that um, that when you kind of look at the landscape of the sport, I do think that this is a little bit of a reversion. I think that for everybody who's not a member of the Big Ten or SEC right now, you have to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief. Now, does it mean that they're not going to break off at any points or anything like that? I, I don't necessarily think that means that's the case. But I do think that it, uh, it presses the pause button and maybe slows down the process just a little bit. 
do you think that this kind of now, like you said, works against um, you know schools from the Pac-12 looking to jump uh, both either to the Big 12 or the Big 10 because they realize that it's going to be much tougher for them, despite the extra money coming in, to ever try to make a CFP if they go to a mega conference versus stay with, uh, with 10 or 12 schools like they currently have right now? I think if you have the opportunity to go to the Big Ten or SEC and make that kind of money, I, I think that you just feel like maybe you're uh, you're kind of locking in your place in college football heading forward. You know, that's something that we heard a lot, especially from Oklahoma people, whenever they made their move to the SEC was, look, you know, college football's changed so much, and the one thing that you want to guarantee yourself is being in the fold, right? I think that even if you're one of those ACC teams and there are three that I think can win national championships – uh, you know, college football is not going to wait for you if, if you are left outside. And so I think that's going to be the one draw if you are Washington or Oregon or whichever other school to go into the Big Ten. But I do think it makes going to a one of the other three conferences or one of the other eight conferences uh, a little bit less attractive. I don't think that there's as much need for consolidation if it's not going to be for huge financial gain. And so, uh, and I think that's probably a good situation for everybody. I think, it, again, it, it sort of presses the pause button a little bit. It slows down the process. Um, and, and so I do think that it really does incentivize kind of sticking with these five major conferences that represent, of course, uh, five different geographical sides of the map. I have so many more questions for Shahan on this. I know you do too, Adrian. Let's keep it moving. We'll do Sports Center next. Come back after the abbreviated edition and more with Shahan Jaraj as we continue. Uh, here on Sports Talk as we continue. All right, I've been saying for weeks since the uh, story about USC and UCLA broke that I thought the Pac-12 would dissolve and we would have Washington, Oregon, Cal, and Stanford go to the Big Ten and then Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado goes to the Big 12, leaving the Pac-12 with just Oregon State and Washington State and they would get absorbed into the Mountain West and that'd be the end of that. After the news today, maybe now this gives the Pac-12 12 a legitimate life uh, line and ultimately those four schools to the big 12 don't make a lot of sense and maybe now the pac 12 looks to grow back and expand to try to stay alive i think that that's probably where we're heading right now because i think that you know there was a moment where it looked like we could be heading towards either four super conferences that's obviously been the rumor for over 10 years at this point or potentially you know just trying to duke it out for that number three conference which obviously i think the big 12 would have had uh, if they had added those four schools would have had a case for so i think that now that we're going to be working with at least six conferences right now making the playoff that puts uh, the pac-12 in a much better position i think that it gives them a future I, i think it does make them buyers in the expansion market one thing that i'll be curious about is you know, if Washington and Oregon were to go to the Big Ten and they're left at eight schools, you know, I think that I'd feel a lot better about them if they did have one or two more schools that made sense. If they could be, even after losing two schools, a 10-team conference. I think that just gives you a level of stability that's just a little bit nicer than that. And so I do think that they're going to end up being uh, sort of people who, who have expansion targets. San Diego State, I think, is probably the first one that comes to mind, obviously. Being in that Southern California market where they really want to stay after losing the two L.A. schools. And also, you look at the quality of their athletic program. I mean, they, they've obviously done a great job in both football and men's basketball. So I, I think that they would be high on the list. And then, then you know, you'll, you'll go and kind of evaluate. We'll see whether a Boise State gets involved. 
Uh, we'll kind of see if anywhere anywhere else, a Colorado State, a UNLV, if you really want to buy low. I, I'm going to be curious to kind of see, but I do think that we will probably move towards the Pac-12 trying to stand pat and expand. Not on these same lines with the Pac-12, but what do you think happens to Notre Dame with all the news today? Well, what's interesting is that obviously Notre Dame, with the way that they're set up right now, is not eligible at any point to get uh, a bye because they don't have a conference championship to win. And so the one thing that you say, though, is that Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame athletic director, was in actually this working group that came up with this model. And he was comfortable with the idea of Notre Dame never having a bye in order to keep its independence. That's something that he felt like was that important to Notre Dame if the finances make sense, which it sounds like they're heading in the right direction to do. So I think that Notre Dame's going to be comfortable with this. I don't think that this hastens any sort of move to the Big Ten. And I think the fact that there's sort of this everlasting sort of uh, uh, this everlasting sort of access to the playoffs, I think is actually a great incentive for them to stay independent, which is really what they want to do. Yep, I would agree with that. Um, I'm just interested to see when, the, when, when all of this shakes out, how much larger will the Big Ten grow? Would the SEC want to keep growing? Or are, are we finally at a point where the Power Fives will just stay put and we'll let this new format come into play and ultimately... See, because the thing is this, Shahan. So if I'm, let's see, I'm, I'm just talking this, you know, just based on the, the news today, right? Um, the money's great. And everybody wants money. And if you go to the Big Ten, you're going to get a ton of it. Same with the SEC, by far and away. But those conferences are so mega competitive that even with 12, it's tougher sometimes for some teams to try to play for a championship than they would if they stay in their other conference. They have a really great season, and now they've got a chance to get that automatic bid. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting question because Certainly, I think, uh, you know, if you are one of these other schools, I mean, one of the things that we heard from, uh, you know, a little bit behind the scenes about Lincoln Riley is that when he went to USC, part of the draw was the path from USC to the college football playoff through the Pac-12, which is a pretty easy path, relatively speaking. Uh, It's going to be harder now going to the Big Ten, but still not as hard as, as certainly with Oklahoma going to the SEC and having to go through five or six or seven teams that could win national championships. So I, I do think it's going to be an interesting question. Uh, you know, look, we're going to end up in a position where uh, we're going to be asking, you know, what matters more to some programs? Is it winning games or is it making money? I, I think that certainly in the SEC is probably going to be the most notable, right? Because you're going to have a school like Arkansas that historically has been a national championship caliber program that right now is kind of an also-ran in the SEC. They, they're doing a nice job under Sam Pittman, but it's, it's not certainly what it was back in the Southwest Conference days. So it, it's an existential question. I do think that there will be a little bit more attraction to staying on the national stage. And a big part of this is just going to be, hey, what are your institutional goals? If you are a school, uh, I mean, one that I could speak to, for example, is Baylor, where I went. Uh, you know, if you're Baylor, I think that the opportunity to play on the national stage matters probably a little bit more than trying to just maximize the money that you can make because it's really about branding for you. If you aren't one of those schools, if you're not one who feels like they can really compete for the national stage, like, you know, let's take a Missouri, for example, maybe that yeah. money to try to, to develop as many NFL players as you can and recruit the way that you can, maybe that's more uh, more attractive to you. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see how, how conferences and schools kind of balance those things out. I'll tell you what else is interesting to me, that uh, you now could have some schools playing up to 17 football games in a college football season. 
No doubt. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest questions that the commissioners are going to have to answer when they get together in Dallas next week. I, I think that one part of it is going to be, you know, do we look into taking away games? Do we look into addressing, you know, whether we, we look into conference championship games being reduced, whether we look into FCS games or non-conference games being reduced? I think all those things will be looked at. But the more obvious piece, I think, that could potentially make things better is whether we get to a revenue-sharing split, whether we do get to some form of compensation uh, above just scholarships and, and that sort of dollars. So I, it's going to be an existential question for them. Bill Hancock, the executive director of the college football playoff today, said that they are open to the idea of increasing compensation in some way if, if it makes sense for them. And so I, I think that that's going to be a big discussion point over the next week. What does this do for other bowl games aside from the college football playoff? Because here in our backyard, we have the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl, and it's a staple here in El Paso year after year as far as bringing the top, uh, you know, great competition from the Pac-12 and the ACC. What does this news today do to other bowl games aside from the uh, the college football playoff format? Yeah, I don't think that it'll affect uh, bowl games too, too much. I think the one that you probably ask about is, like the Rose Bowl, but the Rose Bowl's kind of been, uh, you know, trending that way for a while just with the way that the college football playoff has gone. So, you know, if you're the Sun Bowl, I think that you're still going to get very comparable quality of competition. I, I don't think that's going to be too limited, um, you, you know, and but certainly we are kind of as a sport moving away from these bowl games being as big of a deal as they used to be. There are going to be a couple signature ones. Certainly, look, uh, you know, the, the Sun Bowl gets broadcast on my home network on CBS and, uh, you know, has a great time slot and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's still going to be plenty of prestige to be played in that game. But, uh, you know, will will the Jimmy Kimmel L.A. Bowl have as much prestige? You know, I, I think that certainly that's the sort of thing that you start to ask uh, as we get further and further into more teams making the playoffs. And I also wonder if uh, the Sun Bowl could ever position themselves with other bowl games to be sites of a potential uh, playoff games. Could I wonder how that's going to work as you expand and more bowls could try to get into the picture to bid and be a part of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be curious about that for sure. Obviously, one factor to take into account is that it sounds like at least that first round of games are going to be on college campuses, but... You know, I, I, as the, the playoff came about and as the BCS even came about, we've seen sort of more formalized bowl games get involved, right? At one point, the Peach Bowl wasn't a major bowl game. At one point, the Cotton Bowl was a great regional game that wasn't considered a major bowl game in that kind of way. So I, I think that as we keep moving along, there's going to be opportunities for some of the more historic bowls to definitely have their place in, in the puzzle a little bit. And, I mean, I'll tell you what, I'd love an opportunity certainly to go out to the Sun Bowl and, and have a chance to, to host a major bowl game. Well, it's a, it's a big story. It's obviously one that a lot of people are going to be talking about. Do you think this gets done by 2024? Or do you think they hold to the 2026 date? Well, what's interesting, I think, is that the presidents kind of came together and said, we like this. We want to adopt this whole model. That's what we're voting for. Now figure out the details. You know, at one point, it wasn't like that. They were debating even the little things about, uh, you know, uh, 12 teams and, and home contests and all this sort of stuff. The fact that it's kind of already been approved, I think, puts a lot more pressure on the commissioner working group to try to figure out the details later. Now, the thing that I think that is probably going to be the biggest talking point is the television contract. Right now, this is an ESPN production, and I don't think that we can have things in time 
for 2024 if Fox or CBS or NBC isn't able to enter the picture. I don't think that this expanded playoff will be an ESPN production exclusively. So the question is, how quickly can they work these things out? We've already seen that the Pac-12 has opened up negotiations with ESPN and Fox to try to figure out, you know, what, what's our dollars looking like? The Big 12 just announced that they're going to do that this week. So I think that all of these might work in concert a little bit. And, you know, that would probably be the best chance they have is if these television deals kind of work themselves out. But if not, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them wait until the contract is up in 2026. All right. Great job as always, Shahan. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the weekend, the extra day, and all the football you're going to get a chance to digest here uh, over the next uh, two or three days. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, can't wait. Thank you for having me. Shahan Jaraja, folks, check out his work, cbssports.com. He's got the story up right now. In fact, he put it up just a little while ago. College football playoff expansion, board agrees to 12-team field with aim to implement as soon as possible. Love it! Come back to wrap up Hour 2 next. Stay with us, ABC 7 News. Then more sports talk right here, 600 ESPN El Paso. As usual, well, we hit the air at 3 today. We've got... uh, until 5.30, and then we're going to get out to uh, Football Friday Night uh, pregame with Adrian uh, and Paul McKinnon. Then the Chihuahuas at 6.30 tonight. I'll be heading out to the ballpark. Look forward to seeing all of you out there, El Paso and Salt Lake, the bees. And then we've got Football Friday Night coming up after the conclusion of the uh, Chihuahuas game. So, Adrian, we are doing what we're doing for, like, this is going to be week two of five weeks where we sandwich our programming around Chihuahuas baseball. That's exactly right. Chihuahuas baseball continuing through the month of September, and we'll be back in action uh, as far as our usually scheduled uh, football Friday night at the end of this month, September 30th. But for now, we'll be delivering the pregame show, the postgame show, and it's always a great time with all our reporters all across town. Like uh, Just to put, put this into perspective, Steve, there's a game going on right now, Pebble Hills Del Valle. Mm-hmm. It's a huge contest that we're that everybody's looking forward to. Pebble Hills was up 15 nothing at the end of the first quarter. And Del Valle scored early into the second quarter. Now it's 15 to 6. Pebble Hill's up in the second quarter. We actually had somebody on Twitter chime in uh, a while back. Why is this game being played now? Why is this game not being showcased later tonight? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like once this sack ends up uh, building that second sack, then we're not going to have any of these problems with doubleheaders. The problem is is the sack doubleheader games that you get out there at the Secord Athletic Complex. And uh, unfortunately for uh, what they deal with out there, they have to stack two games. The game right after is a really good one. It's El Dorado uh, up against uh, a really good team in uh, somebody who I just forgot Steve so uh yeah it can't be that good right oh El Dorado Chapin there we go there's there's my brain that is a good game hey by the way is it going to be like sack one and sack two is it going to be big sack little sack I mean like what are we gonna what's gonna happen when it comes to uh the the two uh, the two fields at the sack how are they gonna do that yeah I like one and two I think that's a lot easier to remember and it sounds a lot better than you don't want to say hey we're at we're live at the little sack yeah not <laughs> No, yeah, let's not do that. Let's and not the, do that. And yeah, or, or worse, the big sack. I get you. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> you, you know, I just was kind of wondering how that thing is going to work and what they're going to do out there. Yeah, great question. And uh, I think they're going to finish that up next year. So mm. I think that's the goal. Every year it's it's like, hey, it's next year. So I, I don't know. I think it's just going to be built when it's built, right? Uh, I hear you. I was just kind of curious myself. 
But that's all right. Hey, um, we are going to have our final 30 minutes of this show coming up in just a few, and I'm excited about that because we'll talk more about everything else going on this weekend. Aggies lost yesterday, by the way. We haven't really touched on this yet. We'll talk about uh, Minnesota. Uh, just too much for New Mexico State. If if I guess if there's one silver lining for UTEP fans about the U, the NMSU matchup, it's that two weeks in a row now, the Aggie offense hasn't done much. So if there was ever some hope for UTEP fans, it would be trying to keep the Aggie offense from getting going. I don't understand why they keep going with Diego Pavia early on. And I'm, you know, no knock against him personally, but I watched uh, that game yesterday. Gavin Frakes is the guy. He needs yeah. to be the gunslinger for this team, uh, and he's the one I'd be worried about if I'm a UTEP fan. We'll come back talk more about it after the dallas cowboys update with christy scales top of the hour next here 600 espn el paso oh my goodness so um you know we do these uh, world's finest chocolate fundraisers folks and uh somehow some way joel hit the big one he got the golden ticket which apparently only one gets in the entire run of five or 600 boxes of these world's finest chocolates. And uh, the prize for the golden ticket is a five-pound chocolate bar. A five-pound chocolate bar. Uh, That's right. I just got the photo, and I'm sending it right now to Adrian. It could be the funniest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Like, I'm looking at this thing going, this can't be real. This just cannot be real. Look at that chocolate bar, Adrian. It looks like a guitar, Steve. It really does. This is huge. This is bigger than his entire face, bigger than his, almost bigger than his torso, Steve. But I like the fact that they threw in the milk chocolate. Like, at least if it's a five-pound chocolate bar, make it the best one out there. It's so. their signature premium milk chocolate. That's this right. Is, this is awesome. Congrats to Joel. He got the golden ticket. I love it. I mean, really. That is, and hopefully, hopefully, you know, you got that thing and get it out of the car as quickly as you get it so it doesn't melt and uh, take that home. I wonder how, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll report on that soon enough and try to explain to people how, you know, you eat this thing because that is just, uh, that's unbelievable. Hopefully they have it like, you know, divide it up a little bit, like kind of like a Hershey's bar. You know what I'm saying? Like you could break off pieces at a time. Uh, you're, everybody's, everybody in the family, Steve, is going to have to help out uh, eat that uh, huge, huge monstrosity that is a chocolate bar. How many years do you think we will have that bar in the house before it's finally oh, uh, eaten? That's the question I want to know. Or do you just take that thing and have like, I don't know, 15, 20 people over at the house and you serve that as dessert one day and say, here, you will eat from the largest chocolate bar ever assembled. I think that's a good idea. I think going that route is better because then you're getting stale chocolate. Then you're getting the disgusting stuff after a while if it just hangs around. So get it out early. That's my that's my thoughts on this. I mean, you don't think that thing's fresh and going to last forever? I mean, I, I feel like that's the kind of chocolate bar that will never uh, that will never expire. It's well, it's go the forever. world's finest, so there you go. Exactly. Anyway. Oh, yes, and I am selling bars here at the station, by the way, for those of you wondering. Yes, we are doing the fundraiser for him. and um, It's just, and, 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 I'm, and I just got to tell you, so he was jacked up. This is the honest-to-God truth. Jacked up on Monday because that was the day he was going to get the, uh, the chocolate bar or Wednesday, whatever day it was. I forget. He wakes up early. He's like, Dad, we got to go. We got to go. What do you mean we got to go? He goes, we got to go to school. It's chocolate day. 
I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, this is the day of the fundraiser. So he's all jacked up before the day even starts. He makes me get him to school like the minute it opens and thought that he was going to get like first crack at all the of, of all the chocolates. And sure as heck, he wins the thing. It's unbelievable. And he's never he has never won anything in his life that even compares to this when it comes to these fundraisers. Like he's always disappointed. He gets all these boxes, nothing's in there. Always wants something, nothing's there. And then he I get a picture with him holding this golden ticket, like he's Willy Wonka. And I'm like, my goodness, that is, uh, that's pretty wild, man. Pretty wild. So congrats again to Joel, but let me ask you this. He's, he's not going to be Augustus Gloop, right? He's not going to eat this all himself, right? Uh, I hope not. Uh, uh, let's just say this. Knowing my wife, uh, that will definitely not be the case. Definitely not be the case. Well, good thing for his cavities. Uh, but I do wish he would. Uh, I, I do wish we had a tour of, a cho- of of the world's finest chocolate plant. That would be very cool. Yeah, they should fly out all the winners. That would be. Ima- could you imagine if they did something like that? I would like to meet the Willy Wonka of uh, of this world's finest. That would be kind of fun to see who's the one that's producing all these chocolates for for all these fundraisers all over the city. Yeah, that'd and be all really over the country. Cool. I would like to hear about that. You know, hey, fly out all the winners for the Golden Ticket Awards. Be wild. Yeah, do that kind of stuff. Spend some money. These kids are making you all a lot of money. No doubt about it. No doubt. All right, uh, Hags is going to be coming up in a little bit with story time. Looking forward to that. High school football right around the corner. Games galore. Game going on right now. It's going to be the game of the night, and it's starting at 4 o'clock at the sack. That's unbelievable. Uh, We touched on New Mexico State. You mentioned you would like to see a quarterback switch because this this you know switching quarterbacks isn't working right now. I think Jerry Kills is trying to feel out his team at this point. Yeah, maybe you didn't want to show too much ahead of the Miners uh, game next week. Battle of I-10, a lot weighs on both sides. I mean, uh, now New Mexico State coming into that one, 0-2, thinking the Miners are going to lose. They are gonna they might be going into that one, 0-2 as well. So you're, you're getting two winless teams in kind of a, in a place where both of them want to win in a in a huge way. And I didn't think New Mexico State played uh, entirely poorly. They, they moved the ball in certain drives against the Golden Gophers, but I, I was impressed how Minnesota clamped down in the end of that one uh, and defensively for uh, New Mexico State they have to try to get off the field especially on things like third downs uh, Bryce Jackson uh, Dylan er- uh, Early those are the guys who led them in tackles yesterday defensively but yeah I mean I, I guess I want to see more next week we just didn't get to see too much yesterday in that Minnesota loss blowout loss 38 nothing. I love the Jerry Kill comment after leaving Minnesota where he was from 2011 to 2015 he said you know it was a surreal moment I've never been the same since leaving Minnesota and I never will. So the people that don't like me or are disgusted with me or whatever it is, that didn't change the way I feel about this place. This place was great to me. The community was great to us. So there you go. Um, Meanwhile, here's the problem, okay? The Aggies only had 49 yards of offense in the first half, Adrian. 10 through the air. That's a huge problem right there. Pavia start again start things off. I like Frakes. He's he's got a little bit more moxie to him. He had a pick that was in the end zone. It was a terrible pass. He should have been uh, bet. They should have got on the board on that final drive, and he should have been better as far as his decision making goes. But uh, I think Frakes is the guy there. Uh, I think they like Pavia because he can be that dual threat guy for them. He can run a little bit. He could throw sometimes. But Frakes might be that guy that you look to uh, to actually lead this offense as the season develops. I, I mean, I don't know. Did- 
didn't they like combine for four completions and like 40 yards of passing? They didn't do anything. They uh, they really didn't do anything. But Frakes at least moved the ball all the way. I think it was like deep inside Minnesota territory. Again, his his interception was uh you you just can't give any excuses for what he threw. He threw a pass that was like to the end zone, the right side of the end zone corner and that ended up being intercepted. You know what I feel bad about? I feel bad that uh once again that defense has been just being worn out in these first couple of games because they're always on the field. Yeah, that brings up a really good point because yesterday one of the things I did notice when Minnesota was kind of easing up on this game, they were still able to run it, like really effectively. And yesterday they they amassed almost 300 yards of rushing yards against New Mexico State. So I'm looking at that UTEP game next week. If UTEP can't get things right in the run game, they might have some serious problems because I I think that's the part part where you can actually pick apart uh, New Mexico State's defense. Go run against them. Earlier this afternoon, Jason Craig stopped by the show. We never we weren't able to get him on the air because we were tied up with guests and all sorts of other things. But he's going to be busy tomorrow. He's got uh, big the big Sonderfest at Escadete Park, and that's going to be happening tomorrow and Sunday uh, going on. So it's a two day event, and uh, we are going to be giving away tickets for tomorrow's event. Uh, right now, Adrian, matter of fact, we've got a pair of tickets to the Sonderfest. That's right, and this is taking place tomorrow at Escarate. It has a lot of uh, artists that people know, Lupe Fiasco, Morgan Page. Uh, you, of course, you got Jason Craig and uh, Travi McCoy tomorrow as well. It's it's taking place. It starts at noon, but it pretty much goes all night. So uh, this one ends at 2 in the morning tomorrow. It's going to be an all-day fest out at Escarate. And, uh, yeah, I know how fired up Jason is about this. This, is, this one should be a really cool night. So it goes from 12 to 2 in the morning. Uh, my apologies, saying it was a two-day event. It's, it's just a very long one-day event. Correct. It is a 14-hour festival at Escarate Park. That's exactly right. And I was asking Jason, what, what time are you coming? I really want to see you if I go to this uh, music fest tomorrow. And unfortunately, he is playing right in between the UTEP-Oklahoma uh, game. So I unfortunately won't be able to see Jason. But I'll be supporting from afar and hopefully get a chance to catch up with him later on. He's going to be pretty happy. And we've got a couple of pairs of tickets to give away. Adrian, how do you think we should give these away right now? You know what? We should just give it to the first two callers who want to head out to this con- to, uh, concert tomorrow. And uh, just call in 505 We'll have tickets waiting for you. Angel Munoz will be back here producing Chihuahua's baseball, and he'll run out these tickets to you. Fantastic. So first two callers into the phone lines, 505-6009. You're going to go see uh, Sonder out there at Escadete Park tomorrow. And again, it's an all-day, all-night event. So we've got uh, your pair of tickets, got you covered. And please give us uh, your thoughts on Jason when you get a chance to watch him perform. We'll do that right after we get a chance to wrap things up with Hags and Storytime which will be coming up following the break here on 600. It's ESPN El Paso.